Welcome back to SETI Seminars, the bite-sized podcast brought to you by the organisers of the Oakley Literature Festival. In this season three, we'll be discussing a range of topics, including the enduring impact of Charles Dickens, Skipton's First World War prisoner of war camp, and tackling the global climate crisis. Join lecturer Anne Buckley and Professor Frank Finlay from the University of Leeds as they discuss Skipton's First World War prisoner of war camp. Anne's latest book contains a full translation of a text written by German prisoners about their life in the camp. Anne and Frank will discuss accounts of the soldiers' day-to-day life, revealing some of the fascinating stories of the men themselves. In Munich in 1920, just after the end of the First World War, German officers who'd been prisoners of war in England published a book they had written and smuggled back to Germany. Through vivid text and illustrations, they describe in detail their experience of life in captivity at a camp at Skipton in Yorkshire. This work has now been translated into English for the first time, and it gives us a unique insight into the feelings of the men about the war, about their captors, and their longing to go home. My name is Frank Finlay. I'm Professor of German at the University of Leeds, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Anne Buckley, my colleague at the University of Leeds. Thanks, Frank. So, yeah, as Frank said, my name is Anne Buckley. I'm a lecturer in German and Translation Studies at the University of Leeds. And for the last five years, my work has concentrated on the First World War prisoner of war camp um, here in Skipton, where I live, um, where 916 Germans were imprisoned during 1918 and 1919. So, Anne, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic um, project that you've been involved in. Really, really fascinating to, to read. And I mean, German Prisoners of the, the Great War offers us a direct inside view, you know, behind the scene view of a very much neglected aspect to wartime experience. Tell me, how and why did you become involved in this project? And did you face any particular challenges? So I've lived in Skipton since 2002. And until 2014, I actually knew nothing about the First World War prisoner of war camp. Uh, Like many people in Skipton, I knew that there'd been a, a Second World War prisoner of war camp, but I had no idea about the First World War camp. And it was when my colleague, Professor Alison Fell from uh, the French department at Leeds, was doing some work uh, in Skipton Library as part of the First World War centenary project that she was leading uh, called Legacies of War. So she was in Skipton Library and the library staff asked her if she knew anybody who would be interested in this German book they had in a shoebox in the storeroom. It was called Kriegsgefangen in Skipton. Um, and it turned out that it had been written by a group of the German prisoners in the camp here. So Alison brought it to the attention of the German department at Leeds, and it was my colleague Caroline Summers who actually had the first look at it. Uh, It became apparent pretty early on that the book was of historical significance, um, and it contains probably the most detailed account in existence of life in a British prisoner of war camp during the First World War. So Caroline initially set about a project to produce an English translation involving uh, students, master students, and finally uh, undergraduate students studying translation. 
And I got involved pretty well straight away because I, I work closely with Caroline and, and obviously I live in Skipton um, and have local knowledge about the things that the men were writing about. Um, the timing was obviously brilliant because it coincided precisely with the centenary of the First World War and uh, Craven Museum based in Skipton had uh, a big project going on during the centenary uh, led by project officer Rob Freeman. So I ended up working with Rob over those five years. Um, the camp became one of the focuses of the project and we did some archeology span on the site of the camp. We did exhibitions, uh, talks, and just basically we tried to bring the story of the camp back to the people of Skipton because it had been forgotten. I believe there was something like uh, over 100,000 German prisoners of war in, in, in Britain um, at this time. Um, and uh, I think it'd be, be helpful if you could perhaps um, set the scene for us a little bit with some background to the, to the POWs, but also how does a camp come to be set up um, in the remote ancient market town of Skipton in, in green and pleasant North Yorkshire? Yeah, interesting question. Uh, so the camp was actually built uh, as a training camp for the Bradford Pals. Uh, it was built at the end of 1914 and the beginning of 1915. Uh, the Bradford Pals trained here and then various other regiments, including the Leeds Bantons, Durham Lance Infantry, uh, a regiment of the Black Watch even trained here. And then um, as the British started capturing more and more German prisoners uh, on the Western Front towards the end of 1917 and then into 1918, uh, somewhere was needed to house these prisoners. Uh, it was better to bring them back to Britain than, than to leave them um, on the Western Front where they could possibly escape and rejoin their regiments. So they were brought over to Britain and the obvious place to house them was the empty military training camps. There were actually about 700 um, prisoner of war camps uh, throughout Britain during the First World War, but Skipton was one of only 18 officers camps. So the men here were mostly officers. And when I say mostly, there were a few non-officers, also German prisoners, who were here pretty much as servants to the German officers. So they would cook their meals, um, clean the barracks, uh, actors, barbers, tailors, cobblers, uh, etc. So German prisoners of the Great War, um, this, this translation you've done of, of the fascinating German original, um, was very much team effort as I understand it, and indeed the original was as well, because it, um, it draws on the accounts of some 60 officers, which are then marshaled together and edited together by two principal authors. And uh, it does offer us this, this real panorama of everyday life in the camp. And I think it's enhanced, not least, by the inclusion of some of the men's very vivid drawings, cartoons, caricatures and the like. So taking the whole thing uh, in total, what, what for you were some of the most interesting um, discoveries that you were made or some of the interesting insights that the book offered? Um, so first of all, as I mentioned, it was an officer's camp and according to an agreement of the Hague Convention, officer prisoners didn't have to work. So 
British officers imprisoned in Germany didn't have to work, German officers imprisoned in Britain didn't have to work, which was um, both a good thing and a bad thing. It meant that they weren't subjected to um, harsh labour, but on the other hand, they had to create um, a purpose to their lives and find something to do on a daily basis. And, and this is absolutely fascinating, the, um, the effort that they went to to create um, a vast range of activities within the camp. So they had a theatre, um, a choir, an orchestra, various sports clubs. Um, people may be wondering how they managed to uh, obtain props and uh, costumes and musical instruments, but there was a charity based in London um, set up by a Dr. Karl Markle, who, who was somebody who had a German background. He came here in the mid-1800s and um, he supplied uh, things such as sheet music, instruments and theatre costumes to prisoner of war camps to give the prisoners um, something to do and to make their lives a little bit easier. So um, they had all of these activities going on. Uh, they also set up an incredible education system. Some of the officers were very highly educated and um, each man would put on a course or some lectures on his uh, specialist subject to educate the other men in the camp. There were a few qualified teachers in the camp as well and they actually set up the equivalent of an A-level course for the men who'd been taken out of sixth form uh, before they completed their A-levels. And they actually got the course accredited by the Prussian Ministry of Education and the men who passed that course were awarded their certificates on return to Germany. Um, a couple of other uh, things that were really um, significant, the gentleman's word of honour. So a um, hundred years ago, the officer classes uh, throughout Europe had a lot in common with each other. and. Um, it's been said that they possibly had more in common with each other than they did with their own men. So when a German officer gave his word of honour, this was accepted by British officers. And one of the interesting things was this meant that um, they were allowed to go out on walks outside the camp and they would walk for up to 30 kilometres in the surrounding countryside, um, having handed in their parole form at the gate on which they promised not to escape or make preparations for any future escapes. Um, of course, when they were in the camp and they hadn't given their word of honour, they might plan an escape. But once they'd given their word of honour, they would stick to it. Um, another interesting aspect I found was the cooperation that existed between the Germans and the British. So while their comrades were trying to kill each other on the battlefields, there was an awful lot of cooperation going on in the camp and that was beneficial to both sides. So the Germans actually had a lot of autonomy within the camp. So it was German chefs who cooked the food. Um, these were the non-officers who were there um, as the servants. And so the Germans would plan the menus and a lot of the day-to-day -day life within the camp was organized by the Germans themselves. And this gave them some sort of control over their own lives, but it also meant that the British had to employ fewer people to, to guard them and to look after them. So there's, there's this cooperation going on here in the camp in Skipton 
um, while the British and the Germans are trying to kill each other out on the battlefields. And, and that's another interesting aspect for me. Is there is there anything, um, um, you know, whether a comments on on the townsfolk, um, any points of intersection with with the people in the town where this camp is 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 based? Not a great deal. Um, when they talk about going to their walks, um, initially they routed a few of the walks through the town, but uh, various objects were thrown at them. And so after that, they chose to, to head north into the countryside and avoid the town. Um, there were some rather sexist comments about English women um, made in some of the accounts, uh, saying that they're not, not as beautiful as the German women. Um, the other thing that I've heard from a resident who lives on the site of the camp now, she said that her grandmother remembers going to sing to the men uh, through, the, through the wire of the camp. And there is mention of a Salvation Army going to, going to sing to the men through the, through the barbed wire. So um, this lady's grandmother was possibly um, a member of the Salvation Army, but, but there was very little interaction. Um, I suppose mainly because the men weren't going out to work, whereas in the non-officers' camps, there might have been more interaction where the men were sent to work on local farms and in forestry and quarrying. Thank you. So um, reading the book, I, I found it um, interesting, not least in light of some recent developments, the recent phase we've been living through of the, the COVID pandemic, because there's quite extensive reference, and you actually document this in the appendices to the so-called Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1919. Uh, and uh, for people who, who are unfamiliar with the book, it's not until the end of 1919 that the German um, prisoners are repatriated. So they were here and would have experienced that. And indeed, some of them fell victim to the to the illness. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that particular chapter that's um, referenced, that, that chapter of history that's referenced in the book? Yeah, so there was a, an outbreak, a minor outbreak of, of the Spanish flu in Skipton towards the end of 1918, and a couple of the guards died, but it didn't affect the prisoners significantly at that point. But then in February and March 1919, there was a major outbreak uh, of Spanish flu in the camp. Um, and the men lived in quite close proximity to each other. Um, the officers were 24 men to a barracks, the non-officers up to 34 men to a barracks. So obviously it spread um, like wildfire through the, throughout the camp. Um, the camp hospital wasn't really a hospital, it was just another barracks on, on the site, so that wasn't deemed to be um, good enough to look after the, the sick men. So they were taken down um, down the road, 10 miles down the road to Keithley, where they were looked after um, in Keithley War Hospital, um, also known as Morton Banks Hospital. The men in the book write that they were very pleased with the level of care they were given in, in Keithley. They were looked after very well. And the, the chief medical officer is quoted as, as saying that he doesn't see an Englishman or a German in front of him, he sees a patient. Um, so they were looked after well, but unfortunately 47 of them died of the Spanish flu um, in February, March 1919. 
the, the funerals took place down at Keithley and the men were buried in Morton Cemetery. The graves were then moved um, along with all the German war graves um, to the German war cemetery at Cannock Chase uh, in the 1960s. So moving moving on a little bit, um, one of the, the real delights and pleasures of, of this book is that we, we kind of introduce to a cast of very colourful characters. You know, there's tales of daring do and the like um, that feature in their lives before um, they come to Skipton and indeed afterwards. Um, for, for you, uh, which ones stand out particularly? Yes, so I'm still researching the men and I think this will keep me occupied for quite some time to come. Um, yeah, so the book is basically opens a can of worms and, and as well as just translating the book, I wanted to find out more about the camp and the men. So um, research into the men has been ongoing for quite a long time. So the uh, Bayern Munich goalkeeper was, was one of the prisoners here in Skipton, uh, Ludwig Hofmeister. Um, he actually played two games for the German national team prior to the outbreak of the First World War. And then he was called up to serve. He was in the Bavarian Air Force and he was an observer in the, in the aircraft. But uh, he actually went on to play two further seasons for Bayern Munich uh, after the end of the war. So he played up until 1922. Um, then we had uh, an eminent archaeologist called Walter Bremer. He actually did his postdoctoral thesis during his time in the camp, and he went on to um, take a, a senior position in the um, National Museum of Ireland in Dublin uh, after the war. Um, there was an actor called Friedrich Seams. He was actually the director of the camp theatre here, but then when he returned to Germany, he went on to have a career as an actor and then became a very well-known director uh, afterwards. Uh, we had a number of U-boat uh, captains in the camp. Skipton probably had the highest number of U-boat captains of any of the camps in Britain. And somebody who can't be overlooked is Fritz Saxer. He was a naval captain, and he's actually the first named author of the book, Kriegsgefangen in Skipton. And he became the, the senior German officer in the camp here. Um, after he arrived. So he had a very interesting war. Uh, he started off as part of the, the German occupying force in Germany's colony over in China uh, with its capital, Tsingtao. Um, some of you might have heard of Tsingtao beer, um, which you can buy and skip to Morrison's now. Um, so that the brewery, the Tsingtao brewery was actually set up by the Germans when they created this colony in the late 1800s. So, so Saxon was there when, when the war broke out and then uh, the British asked the Japanese to help them to overthrow the Germans. This was successful and all the Germans were taken prisoner to um, Japan. So Saxon ended up in a prisoner of war camp in Fukuoka. So that was November 1914. After about a year, so November 1915, five of them decided to try and escape. Um, they did so separately, but then Saxon met up with another one of the five um, in Shanghai. He caught a train from Fukuoka to Shanghai using a fake ID that had been given to him by the camp interpreter. So then Saxon and the other escapee, Herbert Strahler, decided to try and get home to Germany by heading west through China, the Gobi Desert, planning to go 
through Afghanistan and into Turkey. They hired some Chinese servants, um, bought themselves um, some provisions, some donkeys, and set off heading west. But after about three months, um, they heard that they were being looked out for and that it wasn't going to be possible to carry on in that direction. So they then had to spend three months traveling back to where they'd come from, to Shanghai. At this point on the way back, they were able to use the Yellow River. So they traveled 1900 kilometers down the Yellow River on a raft and a boat. So having got back to Shanghai, they then managed to get on a boat to um, Seattle in the United States. They parted company again and crossed the United States separately. Saxif crossed the state by train and stopped off to visit some German relatives in Chicago. And then uh, the pair of them met up again in New York where they were then trying to get on a boat heading for Europe. They eventually managed to get onto a Norwegian vessel, but unfortunately for them, it was stopped off the, um, off the coast of Scotland near the Orkney Isles by the British Navy and searched. And after 26 hours hiding in the laundry room, they were, they were found. At this point, they were using fake German civilian ID. So they were sent to the civilian internment camp, Nokalo on the Isle of Man. 23,000 Germans were interned there uh, during the First World War. So um, this was November 1916 now. Then after a year and a half in Nokalo on the Isle of Man, they heard rumours that there were going to be some officer exchanges and that if they confessed that they were really German officers, they might be exchanged for some British officers and be repatriated. But unfortunately, that didn't happen and the pair of them were sent to Skipton. So they arrived here June 1918 and then Saxa became the senior German officer here and, and he's the main person behind this book. So all roads lead to lead to Skipton, if unintentionally. And I believe he ends he ends his career as a rear admiral, if if um, my memory serves me. So we're coming um, to the close of our, our discussion. It's been great so far, and thank you. So perhaps could I ask you or invite you to 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 reflect on on this this particular work, um, which as we have seen is very much a micro historical account of a very, very specific set of experiences that um, have hitherto really not um, attracted a great deal of attention, be it public attention, popular attention, or indeed the attention of scholars like yourself. Um, what, would you, what would you say is the significance of this work? So locally, um, as I mentioned earlier, knowledge of the camp among the people of Skipton uh, had almost disappeared. I mean, you're a Skipton resident as well, Frank, aren't you? So um, did you know about it, for example? No, it, not at all. Given its subject matter and given I'm a professor of German, it's kind of, it's, um, I think it speaks volumes for the fact that it was just a forgotten episode uh, yeah. in, 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 in the history of the town. Yeah, so what we get in, in terms of a local impact um, we really get to see Skipton through the eyes of the Germans. So I'd never thought of Skipton's church tower as being stubby, for example, until I read the Germans' description in the book. And now every time I walk past it, I can't help think of their description of it. And they describe the, the river air um, coming down the valley like a silver snake. And again, I, I think of that when I look at the, the river air from, from the tops of the hills. So yeah, we, we get this 
perspective of the town where we live um, through the eyes of the Germans 100 years ago, which I think is fascinating. Looking at a more national level, we've got the experiences of German prisoners, foreign prisoners on British soil. Um, and, and that's something that we haven't got that much detail of uh, prior to this book. So we get the German experience of imprisonment. We get the German perspective of the, on the war, which is quite interesting. And then I guess internationally, this is another piece of the jigsaw, um, looking at the experience of prisoners of war um, within the First World War. And in the wider context of other conflicts. So and we've just um, time for one final final question. Um, as, as, as we heard earlier, you worked on the translation with a number of um, different individuals, with students, etc. A lot of input from some of our colleagues, with, with, with people um, from non-academic backgrounds as well. What were the most significant challenges posed by this text to, to a translator? Well, yes, it certainly wasn't an easy text to translate, um, but there are many different voices within the text. So some sections were, were written um, in a humorous way, other sections were written um, in a much more serious way. So we had to try to capture the, the different voices uh, of the men. Some of them were more easy to understand than others. So, so the man that writes in a humorous style about the daily routine, um, that was actually quite easy to understand. Um, but then other sections had uh, subtle intertextual references to, to Goethe and Schiller, uh, Kant as well, some of the philosophers. So um, a number of people read through the text to make sure that we didn't miss any of these intertextual references uh, that were there. We had to research concepts such as the court of honour system in order to translate uh, any references to that accurately. And then there was uh, all the military terminology, the, the military items of clothing, for example, um, making sure that we got the correct names for all this vocabulary. So yes, it was definitely an interesting challenge, um, quite time consuming. I believe the Times Literary Supplement reviewed it in 1921 and referred to its lack of humour, perhaps indulging in typical stereotypes that the British have of, of the Germans. Um, but I believe there were some jokes in there as well that were probably not that easy to translate. Yes, yes, there were, there were a lot of jokes and the, the book is full of humour. So I would suggest that the... Um, the book reviewer didn't didn't read it either at all or very well. Um, yeah, the book is um, quite funny at times, and it, it does definitely dispel the myth that Germans don't have a sense of humour. Well, we'll finish on on that note, and congratulations again. German prisoners of the Great War: Life in a Yorkshire Camp uh, has been edited by Anne Buckley and is available um, in the imprint of Pen and Sword. Thanks ever so much, Anne. Thanks, Frank. It's been a pleasure. Cheerio. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining this SETI seminar. We hope you've enjoyed listening. If you would like to learn more about this and other topics in the series, then reading lists are available in the episode description of your podcast app. 
or you can check out our website, which is ilkleylitfest.org.uk. Until next time, don't forget to like, rate and subscribe.